Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who controversially believes that the 2016 film Jackie was perfectly fine, but in my spare time, I'm a technology journalist, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech politics and the media. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Uh, that's an inside joke to the book itself. But today in the red chair is someone I greatly admire and, and know pretty well, Ronan Farrow, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist whose most recent book is called Catch and Kill, Lies, Spies, and a Conspiracy to Protect Predators. It's about the extreme lengths to which wealthy and powerful men have gone to escape accountability for sexual abuse, silencing their victims and journalists along the way. Ronan, of course, is the reporter who broke the Harvey Weinstein story in 2017 at The New Yorker, although he originally tried to report the story at NBC News. And we should disclose at the top that NBC Universal is an investor in Vox Media but does not have any editorial involvement in the show. And I have a contract with NBC News. Not that that matters in this case. Ronan, <laughs> welcome to Rico Deco. There's a lot to talk about. Good to be here. The feeling of admiration is mutual. And Thank you. among Kara's uh, many unsung acts of heroism was uh, being a frequent guest on Ronan Farrow Daily, the poorly rated, <laughs> let's say cult classic midday cable program. That was a great boat. No, it wasn't. It we really used to wasn't. fight all we the time. I know. We used to. Yeah. Kara and I would just fight on air. Yeah, it was. It was nice. It was nice. That's when we knew it was forever. You, you have moved on to better things, let's just say. And there's a lot of things to talk about, especially because I don't want to just talk about this book. I also want to talk about the MIT stuff, all the amazing mm-hmm. reporting you've Thank been you. doing. Um, but let's start with the book. Uh, people know you a a little bit, but talk a tiny bit about your background, how you got to this particular story. Uh, how far back do you want well, to let's, go, Kara? Well, we a go. lot. <laughs> I know you have a long <laughs> how history. How many hours do you have? No, let's, you, you started in journalism at where? So I started in print commentary. You know, I had this kind of eclectic background where I came from this high-profile family, and I'm very conscious of the, the ways in which that um, although it was a childhood marked by a lot of scandal mm-hmm. and, and painful things, was a, a, a door opener and a wonderful set of opportunities and, and privilege and have tried in various uh, endeavors of mine to pay that forward um, and was working you know, with UNICEF in some conflict zones later at the State Department in places like Afghanistan and right. Pakistan. And I began writing really heavily reported op-eds is basically how I would describe them. And some of those early focus pieces... Focus on foreign policy. Focusing on foreign policy. And a lot of my repertorial background is in the foreign policy world, as you know. Which you wrote a book on also, which last time we talked was about that book. That's right. And, you know, a commonality there is that brave whistleblowers at the State Department have risked a lot to tell the stories for that book and some of my foreign policy reporting. And the stories of bravery of people coming forward despite personal risk, is that's very much the overarching theme of catch and kill as well. But the commonality from those early writings and the reporting that I was doing on air when I had the midday cable program uh, and in my current work for The New Yorker and HBO is... You know, I I have tried to, when possible, elevate voices that I thought weren't being heard enough. And Mm -hmm. some of those early op-eds for The Wall Street Journal and other places really focused on uh, rape as a weapon of war and the stories of women in places like the Darfur region of Sudan, Mm -hmm. where reporters really weren't telling those stories uh, enough, partly because there just wasn't a lot of access right, for reporters. Right. So there is a, a bit of a through line. Through line. So you had done that, and then you go to NBC and have this show that you were joking about, this right. this midday show. Which actually, I'm, I'm jokes aside, I think I described in the book it being, uh, it being a show that got uh, bad reviews at the start, good reviews at the end, and no viewers throughout. And 
I am actually very proud of the, the way in which we used that show to do a lot of tough coverage, particularly by the end, um, including like, you know, 20-minute taped investigative pieces. You on, did. You started to do those. Things. Yeah, over yeah. prescription at VA hospitals and things that were off the news cycle. And, you know, I think fellow reporters respected what we were we were doing there. And and in many ways, that also was a precursor to the investigative work that led me to the, the Weinstein story. So talk a little bit about the background of the Weinstein story, like how you, you, you were working on this show and then were you working— Long after you the, the show ended, yes. So after the show ended, Noah Oppenheim, now the president of NBC News at the time, the head of the Today Show, kept me on to continue my role on the Today Show, which was a series called Undercovered with Ronan mm-hmm. Farrow in mm-hmm. that sort of hammy uh, <laughs> morning TV manner, uh, which was about stories that weren't in the headlines a lot and uh, were already by the time my show went off air, kind of becoming increasingly aggressive pieces of investigative work. Mm-hmm. And you know, to his credit and that of the other executives in my chain of command, you know, they liked that strain of investigative reporting and were putting it on more and it was getting good notice. Uh, So that's the context in which I began reporting a series of stories on Hollywood, uh, including one about casting couch culture that ultimately led to all these leads about Harvey Weinstein. Right. Now, this Harvey Weinstein story had been tried by a lot of people. I mean, it was, even I knew, had some semblance that this guy right. was a pig, essentially, right. um, and that he was a problematic person. I met him once at Google because he showed up a lot of digital events mm-hmm. and things like that. But there was a lot of, just, this is a fascinating story because a lot of reporters had tried it, David Carr, Ken Aletta, and many others, and you go to Ken during part uh, from the New Yorker. Why, what was the problem of getting this story nailed down from your perspective when you were going into it as a reporter? So the book is in many ways a tribute to and a love letter to fellow reporters. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's about the obstacles and threats thrown at a whole community of people in our profession, not just me. And I, I hope if I've done my job right, the kind of crazier cloak and dagger stuff that I talk about that I was in the crosshairs of is in service of that larger mm-hmm. narrative of of the whole community of people refusing to stop. And I talk about people like Ben Wallace at New York Magazine mm-hmm. and Ken Oletta, people who were not only uh, determined in their own pursuit of the story over the years, but also generous in paying that forward and helping me along either just through encouragement or through literally recommending sources, which Ben Wallace does at one point in the plot of the book. Mm-hmm. And I'm sincere when I talk about those stories in confronting the ways in which It's not that they didn't try hard enough. Mm -hmm. It was a tough story to break, partly because of these vast circles of protection and, uh, honestly, in some cases, uh, cover-up culture that forestalled the disclosure of these claims. That, to me, was one of the most interesting parts of it. I mean, Harvey is the the nasty— you know, rot at the middle of it, but the, the stuff surrounding him was really interesting and the protection around him. And that was what was really interesting. I had heard many reporters talk about trying to write about this and then sort of being like either, oh, it was just that's the way it was done or which was one excuse. And then two, these women will never talk. Right. I mean, it was a wrenching decision-making process for every source who spoke. They really felt that they were confronting threats to their personal safety, threats of retaliation and their careers being wiped out. And in some cases, I think there's there's a pretty good uh, argument to be made that their careers were wiped out. Mm-hmm. You know, Peter Jackson admitted that he you know, helped with the blacklisting of Mira Sorvino and of Ashley Judd and is to be commended for talking openly about having not cast them in something because Harvey Weinstein had said they were difficult. So a lot of that was was very real, and I was very conscious of the fact that every source who spoke was taking this huge leap. It took many months in some cases for them to do it, but the book lays out very clearly. We also had very hard evidence very early on, and I think that I was the beneficiary of a moment where the culture was starting to change. Right. And people had started talking about these issues more, you know, Gretchen Carlson and the Fox News scandal, right, Cosby the accusers. Trump and, yeah. Right. And so I was able to point to emerging examples that suggested, as impossible as this seemed, if these women spoke, maybe for the first time they would be heard. Talk about, I, you know, I interviewed, obviously, Jody Cantor and Megan Tuohy, who also wrote, have just written a book called She mm-hmm. Said, about the difficulty of getting people to talk. Now, talk about your experience at NBC, because a lot of the focus of this story recently has been on your difficulty with NBC. This is all about that, too, about being not being able to get to the story because your own bosses were in your way. Um, and it, you make a compelling case. This is just, what's astonishing is the different, to me, one of the two interesting things of the comparison between those two books is the different response of the New York Times leadership to the NBC leadership. Yes. 
So talk a little bit about that, because in, in the case of Dean Paquette, he was one they had editors were very encouraging. They were don't talk to Harvey alone, had the reporters' backs. I don't think reporters ever felt unsafe mm-hmm. in a very unsafe reporting situation, really. And or difficult in a reporting situation. The contrast is is important. The fact pattern at NBC News, and these were executives I liked uh, and respected outside of the, the context of the killing of this story. And, you know, the book is meticulously fact-checked, but also very sober in tone. It's, it's you know, as generous and fair to them as, as possible, and all of their rebuttals are included at length. But the facts are pretty hard to dispute and really do show, you know, Noah Oppenheim orders a stop to this, this the reporting, the president of NBC News, orders us to stop reporting six times. Richard Greenberg, the head of the investigative unit under him, orders us eight times to stop. They're ordering us to cancel interviews to not take a single call, and that's not my account of events alone. It's, you know, at a working level, this was witnessed by others. My producer, for instance, has mm-hmm. come out publicly and said, I yeah, saw all of this. Yeah, he did a terrific piece of Benedict Right, very powerful. And he's a working-level guy who put his career on the line, honestly, to speak out about this, first within the company and then resigning over it. And that kind of an order to stop raises a lot of questions about what's happening behind the scenes. There were signs that they were secretly talking to Harvey Weinstein. Harvey Weinstein began to say in his legal threat letters to me, I have a deal with NBC. Mm-hmm. They have promised to terminate this story and to assert a copyright claim if you ever take it elsewhere. Uh, you know, we include in full their response that he's exaggerating in that. But I'm able to document in this book at least 15 secret calls between Harvey Weinstein and NBC executives, Harvey Weinstein doing things like sending them gifts after the killing of the story and promises being made on those calls to kill the story. So I come at it from as dispassionate a standpoint as I can, but I think you frame it in the right way, which is the contrast is important. This is bigger than NBC. It's bigger than any one story. This is about the access to the truth in our democracy Mm -hmm. and what we look the other way in response to and what we pay attention to and who crafts our cultural and political narrative. And when you have an example like Dean Bacay at every turn, the Washington Post did a side-by-side chart. Yes, it was fantastic. It was pretty striking. Eric Wimple did it. Right, Eric Wimple, who's done great reporting on this and commentary, laid out, you know, every time that there was a, a break in the story, Uh, Dean Bacay and the editors under him saying, you know, go farther, go faster, you know, work on this. We want to encourage you. And at every turn, the NBC executive saying, we need to pause. We need to stop. Mm -hmm. You need to cancel this interview with a rape victim. And I hope that the lesson there is not just about this network. It is about the shared responsibility of our profession. And, And the contrast is also there within the plot of Catch and Kill, because mm-hmm. then David Remnick looks at the same information NBC sends out the door, and a few weeks later, it's a Pulitzer Prize-winning story. Seven weeks later, right. Seven, was it seven weeks later? They've tried to assert that it's actually closer to four weeks right. between when they greenlit it. Yeah. Because there was an interregnum, you have to remember, where I was out in the cold and like paying for camera crews myself sure. and trying to keep it going, and The New Yorker hadn't greenlit it. It was very scary. I was under personal Curtis, legal threats. Do you think it's a difference between TV journalism and print journalism, or you had to have someone on camera? That was like a— right. And we always I've, re- I've read all their responses right. about which, the, on- which are, the wh- obsession with on-camera and, and yeah, and there, the there were story. you know we had eight, eight on-camera interviews of various kinds. Some of them were faces in shadow, but that was right, typical. Right, which they do all the time. All the time, typical of any of my investigative stories. Right. There were never fewer than two named women in the stories. We had this explosive audio tape from a police investigation yes, of, of yeah. Harvey Weinstein admitting to a sexual assault. So I'll let people be the judge of whether that should have made it on air. Most journalists have agreed that it had, but again, that's not the point. It's kind of a distraction tactic to talk about what we had and when, because if they had ever said, "You don't have enough, go out and get more," as Dean Bacay did at various points, uh, I think we would have been just raring to go. We really fought like hell to get this on air at NBC. Mm-hmm. When you think about this, you know, because a lot of, I want to do want to get to Harvey Weinstein mm-hmm. and, the, and the things he did, because I think that's, the, the, the abuse of power is really what you write about all yes. the time, really, and about the uses of power and keeping power and trying to stave off. And this is about power. Why do you imagine the executives at NBC did this? Well, it's worth putting into context the rebuttals, which are like the rebuttals. Very aggressive. I, very I'm aggressive. Sort of surprised. But, but, but I do, it's an occupational hazard, and I mm-hmm. do get that in response to and ahead of just about every story I do. You know, sure. when I reported on allegations of misconduct and secret settlements and other things at CBS, same kind of a smear machine that spins up people digging in before mm-hmm. you get a conversation about accountability. Same with the reporting on the Weinstein Company and on and on. So on the one hand, none of that is a surprise. It's it's just a structural facet of this kind of uh, reporting. On the other hand, you need to put it in the context of, as in those other stories, those 
efforts to spin are coming from individuals accused of serious misconduct. Andy mm-hmm. Lack, the head of the NBC News Group, is accused in this book by multiple women of sleeping with underlings and retaliating against them. His denials of not the sleeping with underlings, but of the retaliation are in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, Noah Oppenheim has you know, some very, very problematic views about women that are espoused in writing um, that seem to mirror his arguments about this not being a newsworthy story that are exposed here and have kind of gone viral. And I do document at this company in a period where they had previously told their journalists we had no sexual harassment settlements, at least seven settlements. You know, there is a paper trail here of this being a serial problem at this company that was buried. And they are still saying as the book suggests, was the deliberate design of these secret settlements, that this is all coincidental. Mm-hmm. They had a euphemism in corporate terms. They called it enhanced severance. Right. That, that these, was a fascinating right, word. That these women just happened to have complaints about Matt Lauer and others over the years uh, that they voiced within the company at a very high level. I talked personally to executives at leadership echelons of this company who were told about a Matt Lauer problem and other sexual harassment and assault problems. And those problems were not addressed. They were paid out and swept under the rug. And there again, it's not about these not public figures or, you know, legally public figures, but not figures we necessarily care about in our living rooms when we're talking about this around the water cooler. This is about a wider pattern of corporations that cover up the problem and then people get hurt as a result. So NDAs and other and other methods. Right. And we're seeing, I mean, y- you've seen in the tech world, for instance, mm-hmm. I mean, I think Uber has moved towards sure. not using these kinds of agreements in cases of yeah. sexual assault and harassment. Yeah. Um, CBS has well, moved away they from They were it. one big cover-up all the time. Right, <laughs> right. Like, and you exactly. were among the first to report on that. Yeah. So this is not even necessarily just about the media business, though I think there is a particularly important thread in the reporting in Catch and Kill that is about what happens when that kind of a culture of corporate cowardice and cover-up collides with an institution that is also responsible for telling us our own narrative. Right, right, absolutely. Were you surprised by the aggression that NBC has pushed back at least two people there? And obviously it's been no, because agreed it, to by the top. Right, I mean, no, because these are people who are accused of very serious things and are, are cornered and all I can do as a reporter is uh, be meticulously fair and really generous to their rebuttals. And, you know, when I include things like Noah Oppenheim having written that women enjoy being pumped full of alcohol and preyed upon, I make go to pains to say, you know, people change in their views over time. And, mm-hmm. But it's, you know, it's relevant because this is a news executive making news judgment decisions based on that same logic in the present day and kind of mm-hmm. espousing the same logic in the present day. In every case, we just try to be really fair, and when I say we, I mean uh, an extensive fact-checking and editing operation that really vetted this thing over and over again. So and then p- people will do what they may with the facts. The other Karen. one was was torturous interference. Mm-hmm. That was fat. That to me, I, I have never in my life heard that excuse. Well, there's I know of it. Right. There's this moment in the— As a reporter, I've never gotten it from a lawyer at The Washington well, Post, The Wall Street Journal, anywhere. It well, was... it's—so, tortious interference is the idea that if you're reporting uh, with sources who have contracts— Yeah, I do it all the time. —that they're breaching, which yeah. all of us do all the time because yeah. that's how big stories get broken. Right. Um, and, you know, any given political story, there's very often NDAs that are broken. The idea is that if you are deliberately frustrating a, a contract, you could get sued for that. And it's most famous uh, for the for being the legal rationale that is completely specious and ridiculous that's mm-hmm. thrown at reporters at CBS during the plot of The Insider. Yes, Westmore. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. right. When they're, the parent, yeah. parent company is trying to shut down their big tobacco reporting. Right. And there are many points in the plot of Catch and Kill where it's sort of, it's a running joke where people look at each other and say, like, has John Lovett, my partner, mm-hmm. says at one point, like, has no one in this building seen The Insider? <laughs> because literally you have the parent company of, of NBC News coming down and saying, uh, tortious interference, what about tortious interference? And what I uncover in this book is that actually Harvey Weinstein is feeding them these arguments that they're then echoing. Right, because he saw the movie. Um, <laughs> Clearly, at least he did. <laughs> did he make it? He, <laughs> he did know cinema. Yes, he did know cinema, so he knew that one. But that was a fascinating thing, is the idea that, because that's what reporters do. I mean, I can't I can't tell you how many memos I published that obviously the people who gave me shouldn't have given them to me. Of course. But it, it's sort of like a, a lack of knowledge of how reporting works. Well, and, and it's worth noting that the moment I brought the same material to The New Yorker, Fabio Bertoni, the incredible general counsel there, who is just a heroic defender of so many important stories that have changed our culture, kind of laughed at it and said, that I cannot believe that any media attorney at, mm-hmm. at a serious journalistic outlet would actually internalize that argument. There's just not the case law to support right. that. And I, as an attorney, knew that and had 
argued that vigorously, but right. you know, Kim Harris, the general counsel at NBC News, it seems very clear was making an argument ex post facto, not based on her own legal analysis, but mm-hmm. based on this uh, hostile source and what he believed. And another reason why this is important, Kara, is what I document in this book is a company that is brokering and threatening to enforce its own secret sexual harassment settlements as they acquiesce to a hostile sources argument that those settlements are sacred and can't be reported on. Now, now, with the idea that Harvey Weinstein was threatening that that he would bring this out— and we'll get to AM, AMI right? And soon. and more than that, a, a broader point. You know, they there was a conflict between the corporate and legal practices of this company, and what journalism needed to happen in this story, because this was a company that was upholding its own very very similar agreements to bury sexual harassment claims. Right, but with these NDAs and, right. and other things, right. which are I think really the bane of the existence of all these things. I think that's and right. And Megyn Kelly just went on. Fox News and said that everybody should be released from it. What would she you did. get if that was the case? Well, I'll tell you that, you know, as much as they are claiming this is all coincidental that these women were paid out and they're not yeah. trying to stop anyone from speaking, these women are still terrified of speaking. Yes. I have had so many conversations in recent days from women who have gotten, actually in the last year plus, calls from NBC lawyers yes. as the Lauer stuff was bubbling up saying, your NDA is still enforceable and are, are remain in a state of terror that they are going to have these contracts enforced and they're going to get wiped out. Right, exactly. Although the question is, would they ever actually do it? The same thing with torturous interference. Would they actually? Well, so this, this is also part of the backdrop of mm-hmm. so much investigative reporting. It is uh, very different to threaten lawsuits right. uh, versus actually pursuing them. And one thing we've seen around this book is legal threats from multiple players, including, like, you know, the litigation department of NBC Universal, uh, very quickly began calling the publisher, Mm -hmm. um, but also Matt Lauer individually making legal threats. Dylan Howard of the National Mm -hmm. Enquirer, there's all this new reporting about AMI and collaboration with the president during the election. Dylan Howard hired lawyers in every region of the world to threaten to sue booksellers. And Mm -hmm. actually, in the last week, we've seen this kind of local drama in Australia where it became a banned book. And Mm -hmm. Amazon Australia, of all places, this is interesting to you as a tech reporter, Mm -hmm. banned this book, and there was massive demand for it, and indie booksellers refused to acquiesce to these frivolous threats and were selling it, and it was selling out. And just today, Amazon Australia has agreed to sell the book. Yeah, Profiles and Courage. <laughs> Who owns the Washington Post? Right. In any but case. But it was crazy. They did acquiesce to this this crazy threat, and it's a country with um, defamation laws that are very kind of outdated and mm-hmm. allow for those kinds of threats. But right. I'm glad to see that people are developing a Now Australia and- can be sated with Ronan Farrow's <laughs> fair. Anyway, yes. when we get back, we'll talk about AMI and more uh, about Harvey Weinstein and what's going to happen to him. Um, I'm here with Ronan Farrow, whose recent book, everybody knows who Ronan Farrow is now, uh, is called Catch and Kill, Lies spies, and a conspiracy to protect predators. I also want to get to the Jeffrey Epstein reporting he's been doing at MIT, which is something I think uh, was really astonishing, and what's coming up. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back after this. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor. What's a mistake they made that changed their approach? And how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. We're here with Ronan Farrow. His book is called Catch and Kill, Lies, Spies, and a Conspiracy to Protect Predators. It's about Harvey Weinstein, but it's also about power and about the uses of power and silencing of people. Um, You write a lot about silencing powerful people, silencing their behavior. And it's something I'm familiar with, you know, in terms of tech uh, moguls trying to— they're not—it's not in the similar kind of thing, but the idea that they are all-knowing, all-seeing. I'm very familiar with this 
Talk a little bit about what's going on with Harvey Weinstein now. The threats were really from him, um, even if NBC got moved by him to do something about it. It really came from him and his use of detectives and other things. Yeah, I mean, he, he corralled multiple institutions to try to shield him, not just NBC News, but also AMI, the publisher of the National Enquirer. Which is where catch and kill comes from. Explain that. Yeah, the term catch and kill is an old term in the tabloid world. And mm-hmm. it, it refers to buying the rights to a story in order to bury it, uh, usually at the behest of a powerful person. Right. And the trail of clues in this book led me from a close collaboration between Harvey Weinstein and the National Enquirer to bury stories and dig up dirt on Weinstein's opponents, all the way to the top, if you will, to Mm -hmm. the National Enquirer's relationship with Donald Trump and the Mm -hmm. way in which that may have had a bearing on the last election cycle. And I I published a series of stories in The New Yorker about examples of catch and kill on behalf of Trump, including the Karen McDougal story, which was a Playboy playmate who had had an affair with Trump and her the rights to her story were secured by AMI in collaboration with Trump Associates. Well, they they paid her out and then shut her up. Mm -hmm. And uh, another example where AMI acquired the rights to a story from a Trump Tower doorman about Trump supposedly having a love child, which it's unclear whether that's true, but the transaction was real. They paid this guy out to try to bury the story before the election. And there's actually a brand new revelation in this book about another case where they try and fail to go after a story. AMI is in conversation with Trump associates after a Jane Doe anonymous rape allegation is made in a lawsuit against Donald Trump um, and alleging also that Jeffrey Epstein was involved in in a sexual assault. And the Inquirer does send a reporter out at the behest of Trump associates to try to squash that one, too. Right, right. So this, and this is a pattern for Harvey Weinstein also. It is. Squashing and ruining careers or shutting people down or getting people not to talk. And he escalates that to this kind of incredible extent where people have been reading the book now and saying, you know, it reads like a spy thriller. Yeah. And it's easy to and find that. And there are that. spies. And there are literal spies. Yeah. So if, if, fair enough. But on the one hand, that, that sounds kind of glamorous in retrospect. But on the other hand, it's kind of terrifying to think that those kinds of underhanded and exotic and crazy tactics get thrown at reporters in our country where we have the protections Explain of the First Amendment. Explain what happened with you, with Black Q. So Harvey Weinstein in late 2016 hires a firm called Black Cube, which is an Israeli private intelligence firm uh, that, you know, boasts about being staffed by former members yeah, of the, the Mossad. The name shows no insecurity whatsoever. Okay. <laughs> the, the name is, is very much like a, a Bond villain's name Cube. for his, his operation. Now I know you suck. <laughs> right. I mean, it's not a subtle name. Um, and the tactics were not subtle. They offer the services of elite war-hardened veterans trained in subterfuge, and and their specialty is false identities and front companies. And in this case, uh, they signed a contract with Harvey Weinstein and his attorney, David Boys, a powerful, high-profile attorney that you're very familiar with. Mr. Theranos. Pops up in a lot of stories, including in the tech world. Um, Kind of a, a, you know, liberal hero celebrity prior to some of the recent revelations. Uh, But I I was able to obtain contracts that he had signed and admitted ultimately to having signed, ordering secret agents from this Israeli spy firm to, for example, uh, send a fake reporter to interview people to extract information send an undercover operative, kind of a femme fatale type, honestly, mm-hmm. uh, leaning into this these sort of spy tropes to gaslight both reporters and sources. I mean, yeah, this woman... Yeah, work with you, the femme fatale, but go ahead. <laughs> right, a little more due diligence, um, yeah. perhaps, next time. But this woman actually was successful enough that she became essentially Rose McGowan's best friend under mm-hmm. a false identity, and meanwhile was secretly recording her as they had heart-to-hearts and sending those recordings back to her alleged rapist, Harvey Weinstein. So mm-hmm. this is you know, serious, underhanded stuff. And I document in the book for the first time the way in which they also hired a series of subcontractors, including a Russian and a Ukrainian spy, um, who are a little bit, you know, Tweedledee and Tweedledum and mm-hmm. uh, spend a lot of time uh, staking me out and chasing me around the city and at one point actually chasing a neighbor of mine who looks like me. And they're, I mean, God Did bless you, them working very long hours. That? They're like were, peeing in bottles because right. they can't get to the bathroom. Right. Um, but it, so it's almost like a, a, a black comedy in some moments. But 
it is also very alarming to be in the crosshairs right. of that. What was that like to be followed? You were aware you were being followed. I was increasingly aware. And you're, and you're investigated, which you should be, as any investigative reporter, should have a bunch of different tools at their disposal to fend this off. Well, I mean, that's sort of charitable of you to say, and I, I do, in the course of the book, kind of do a security consultation with a whistleblower attorney who's used mm-hmm. to dealing with security issues, and I get a, you know, a secure line to make encrypted calls on, and a code name attached to that phone number, which is Candy, uh, because they picked that, that whistleblower firm, and I'm like, why do why do I have to be called Candy? I, I sound like a nice girl from the Midwest. You should not have moved to L.A. I am going to call you forever now, but keep going. God, I should not have told yeah. you that. Um, so I try to take precautions, but the reality is I'm getting told by sources to get a gun and to move out of my apartment, which I ultimately do, and I'm looking over my shoulder a lot and seeing the same guys in the same car over and over again, and on the one hand, you know, I am a very skeptical investigative reporter and lawyer, and, mm-hmm. and often in this plot, I'm the last to believe that something crazy is happening. Right. But on the other hand, you know, I know the importance of, of acting quickly if there's a sense of danger. Sure. And I ultimately do follow the breadcrumbs back to prove that it's real. And one interesting thing about all of this, Kara, is as my sources— who are overwhelmingly women in, in these particular right, stories. Getting, that's are, what I'm going to say to the victims. Yeah. Right, right, and they're getting targeted in this way and are suspecting it, and I'm hearing from others, including news executives, like, these ladies are crazy. You know, right. They seem unstable. They think they're getting followed. I mean, this is crazy, crazy, crazy. And then steadily, as I kind of have the same suspicions, you, you can see in the book how the temperature in these rooms changes, and I'm almost lumped in with them. You're right. too close to it. You're emotional. You're hysterical is a word that gets yeah. thrown at me yeah, a little. welcome which, to being a lady. I was going to say, like, I can't claim to fully understand what right. it's like to hysterical. get that all the time as a woman, but yeah. I maybe have a little of outsider's insight because there is this strange penumbra that forms around yeah. sources, and I get you're pulled being, into it. Right. Crazy. I mean, that was what they used with Rose McGowan. And you everything. bet. And Rose McGowan, I, I feel like everyone owes a little bit of an apology because the culture wrote her off as being crazy. And one of the important points— She's loud is what she is. She is loud and, and was, as it turns out, very right in her assessment of what right. was going on and did a difficult thing. And, I mean, I th- I think most of us would not sound particularly stable under the circumstances of being 100%. a target of an international espionage operation right. for as long as she was. And I make the point in the book that, you know, reporting decisions shouldn't be made on the basis of sort of the vibe or aesthetic of a person or mm-hmm. misogynistic arguments about their stability, quote-unquote. Right. It should be made on the basis of the facts and whether the claim holds up. And right. Rose McGowan's claim was always supported by contemporaneous accounts, what we would call in legal terms prompt outcry witnesses who saw her emerge from that situation distraught where she told the story immediately and consistently by a paper trail, including uh, documents around a, a settlement. You know, this was not just a, you know, a crazy person shouting from the mountaintops. Mm-hmm. There was evidence, and right. I, I really tried to go to pains to separate out those two things. Right, because one of the things that point is all the documents. I mean, Jody and Megan talked about this. The, that the way they went at it was through... The documents and the, and the settlements, the yes. legal documents. You spent a lot more time with uh, focusing on getting these women to talk on the record. They did too. Talk about the difficulty of doing that, and where are the how where these women find themselves now? You know, depending on the circumstances of the traumatic events that an individual lived through. There are some people I stay in touch with who still have good days and bad days. I mean, Mm. you look at a a story like Annabella Shiora's, which is one of the allegations that really haunts me to this day, where she had a a really violent story of of assault uh, by Harvey Weinstein, allegedly, and and backed by considerable evidence. Mm. She'll be testifying in the... And, And she has volunteered to testify, which is an incredibly brave thing to go through. I mean, this is layers of re-traumatizing herself in going on the record and mm-hmm. volunteering to testify. This is a wonderful actress who had such a promising career. Wonderful actress who really was kind of taken out of commission by this and went through years of what appears to be stalking by Harvey Weinstein even after that initial alleged assault and did a very brave thing with me in, in telling a story that was almost impossible for her to tell and honestly incredibly difficult to hear, I think, for me and for the public. And I think you know, feels in some ways, as virtually every source in these stories uh, that I've told, uh, I'm happy to say, seems to feel that this was fulfilling and the right thing. But also, as with any survivor of serious trauma, I think, you know, has days that are really hard. Mm -hmm. And I think everyone's experience is complicated to this day. I think that 
the ups and downs of the conversation where you see powerful people digging in and refusing calls for accountability and, you know, sending threatening letters to women accusing them of various serious crimes. Um, those are all sort of triggering for some of these uh, women who have spoken in these stories. But also, overwhelmingly, they are staying strong. Right. You know, I, the theme of the book is, again, really an optimistic one. It ends on a note of people continuing to come forward and mm-hmm. reporters refusing to stop. And so many of the plot twists in the book are animated by these whistleblowers surprisingly kind mm-hmm. of uh, becoming turncoats against the operations they're a part of and trying to expose them. And I think as long as we have people showing that kind of bravery, we've got a fighting well, chance at accountability. People really understand whistleblowers. I mean, on a lesser scale, when people would tell me about things about companies, everyone's like, oh, they're disgruntled. I'm like, no, they're not. They're not. They don't like what's happening, and they can't tell you, and so they're going to tell the press. Well, and again, uh, in it's, a lot of ways. It, it's about the evidence, in my view. I mean, yeah. I think it can be appropriate to fully disclose the context of who a person is, what their relationships around the story mm-hmm. are. Um, but if they have receipts, they have receipts, right? right and exactly. I mean, the MIT story is a great example of this was a former employee who they, you know, tried to suggest was disgruntled. But uh, sorry, she saved all of her emails and, uh, you know, maybe don't right write in emails at MIT leadership, uh, you know, cover up this Jeffrey Epstein yeah, donation. Yeah, we're going to get to that. It's in not a second. great thing to put in Let writing. Finish with Harvey Seuss. What's yeah. going to happen to him? What, where, where is he now? Because it's, it's unclear. It's some of the, the detective has been pushed off. There's some controversy around the criminal case versus the civil cases. You know, I leave Harvey Weinstein in this book when his kind of plot thread and it resolves because it's about many threads of which he's only mm-hmm. one in a state of kind of continuing to mobilize his machine. And right. you've seen how around his pending criminal trial – he has worked to discredit and smear every cop on the mm-hmm. case, yeah. uh, interfere with the prosecutorial process, you know, object to every a bit of procedure. And he's within his rights to have vigorous legal does. representation, but it, it also does get extremely underhanded at times. And you know, I tell the story of uh, Lucia Evans in the book, who was incredibly brave about coming forward with her story of sexual assault mm-hmm. about Harvey Weinstein and was part of the early criminal proceedings and really played a pivotal role in encouraging others to come forward. And if you talk to sources around the DA's office, they say she was extremely credible, which is also the conclusions our fact checkers came to. But Harvey Weinstein was able to weaponize process-related things like, you know, whether a detective on the case had told a secondary witness to present things in a favorable light, things that, if it's true, the detective denies it, of course, would be procedurally incorrect, but don't go at all to the the woman's credibility, but that he was able to be very skillful in digging things up through PIs and then throwing them at the case to remove some of these charges. Right. So, so where does it it's, end it's an him? illustration of the the system no, that survive to be and continue exactly right exactly what he's done is abuse of a power and and that's why I can't over. answer the question you know I uh, lay out in this book a lot of evidence that this particular prosecutor Cy Vance uh, the Manhattan District Attorney um, in the view of a lot of cops especially really let Harvey Weinstein get away with this and potentially prey on other people afterwards mm-hmm. in 2015 where they had a literal taped confession from him. And his lawyers and PIs descended on the DA's office, and suddenly that all went away. So uh, we will see. You know, it's a different climate now, and there's a lot of pressure on Cy Vance to do better this time. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of obstacles to justice. I will say that there's there's multiple jurisdictions that are looking at this. Right. So, and then there's the civil cases. Right. So I think it'll be a long time before we know the answers to those questions. But he'll be ensconced in litigation for quite a bit of time. Presumably. I imagine so. He's not been making movies. Right. I'm waiting for that press release. <laughs> Literally, I'm like, you know he's going to do it. Well, it is Hollywood. There's a moment where um, after the New York Times Weinstein story breaks, uh, NBC has blacked out coverage of it, and every other network is kind of leading with it. It's this yeah. big story, and there's a period of time where NBC isn't covering it Because they hadn't all. done any work on it, but you had, of course— Well, not just you. that. I mean, they weren't even covering it as news of the day that other right. outlets were covering it. Yes, there was this peculiar— that. and it was— it began to be covered in the press. Like, NBC News is avoiding this story. What's happening? And there's, uh, of course, this is also a tribute, as it is to many journalists in general, to the journalists at NBC News, many of whom are sources here. And um, there's multiple meetings that were memorialized in various ways. So there's dialogue from them. And there's an exchange where producers are asking critically about this. Like, Noah Oppenheim, head of NBC News, why are we blacking out the story? Why have you told us not to cover this? And um, he says of Harvey Weinstein... It's Hollywood. He'll be back in 18 months. So maybe 
you are both right, and we will see yeah. that precedent oh, press release so. and be another so movie. Just, I want to talk about next when we get back, because the idea of, of, of a pushing back on the Me Too movement, I want to talk a little bit about MIT, uh, which I think you had them dead to rights on this thing and where that's going. Thank when you, we get Karen. back with uh, Ronan Farrow. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, and his new book is called Catch and Kill. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. We're here with Ronan Farrow, one of my, I think he's, I think you might be my favorite journalist. I'm not sure. Kara, I think you are. You're one of my favorite journalists, <laughs> and that makes my day to hear. In Thank you. In any case, um, and I like you so much better than your fiance. Is that the right word? <laughs> oh, love he's going to no. be mad. He loves you too. <laughs> I know, I know, but I just like to keep him a little bit <laughs> yeah, rare yeah. with he's, him. He's so got plenty he, of ego to go you around. You know, I got to like, I got to hold it back for the him. The acknowledgement in the book uh, yeah, at the very end says, Jonathan already has uh, the dedication, uh, the best laugh lines in the book is present on almost every page. Uh, he's had enough attention. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he would like some more. Thank you very much. No, I love you, John. You're great. We love you. Uh, we had one of the best interviews I've had at South by South. Oh, yeah, you guys have good chemistry. It. Yeah, we have strange chemistry, I would say. Um, <laughs> So it's like cats and dogs, lesbians and gay guys. Um, so talk a little bit about AMI very briefly uh, about what where that's going because you did a lot of reporting on that also. And that's it's all it's fascinating how it's all linked together because then it, that's a cop skipping a jump to Epstein, um, mm-hmm. which you then dealt with at MIT. This is where I hope people you know do read the book cover to cover because it is in part not just about the headlines, although there are considerable and carefully fact-checked headlines in it. It is about the slow accumulation and convergence of plot threads, and mm-hmm. one it's of them systemic. involves right. It's systemic. It's about these circles of mutual protection and power, and one of those plot threads involves AMI and the work that they were doing for both Harvey Weinstein and Donald Trump, mm-hmm. and you know as they're doing these catch and kill operations. Uh, to bury stories for Trump during the election, a potential violation of campaign finance law, I might add. One of the many. One of the many, right? They're drawing closer and closer to Trump. And actually, I I reveal in this book uh, a pretty well-documented multiple-sourced account of uh, a shredding party before the election where Mm -hmm. there is a complete list of the Trump vault of secrets at AMI and all the dirt they have on him, which I see for the first time any reporter has seen it in this book. And I talk about that. And uh, there are uh, documents and uh, you know, we may never know exactly what was destroyed, but potentially material pieces of evidence in, in a serious criminal inquiry mm-hmm. uh, that are destroyed just before voters go to the polls. Right. Well, don't you watch I Succession? Am, they still exist. Just, <laughs> right. Greg, Greg copied so, them all. I, I have been told many times that a lot of uh, elements of this plot resemble a real-life succession. It does. It's astonishing. And they continue. And they, right now, they're on the ropes, too. They're a similar kind of thing. They're, they're Yeah, I mean, they, they had to sign a, a non-prosecution agreement with uh, prosecutors, and uh, Michael Cohen is in jail as a result of that. Mm-hmm. It is, you know, curious that leadership at the National Enquirer, because of the way this deal was set up, 
evaded accountability, although the deal does require them to admit to these uh, potential crimes and to earnestly promise to do no more crimes for several years. Um, So they're in this position of ongoing scrutiny, and obviously uh, Dylan Howard has, you know, strenuously denied a whole number of things that are in this book, and that's all in there laid out in a very fair way, um, and has threatened to sue all over the world to stop its publication. Yeah. He's very successful, I see. Um, so, and then talking about MIT, because, that, you know, obviously it's an area, I, I just interviewed Joey Ito. The, the, it was a shock to see those emails, I have to tell you. You did it, and I interviewed the whistleblower uh, group that helped him, mm-hmm. John Nye mm-hmm. and others. Talk about that story, because that was, you know, it, it was the same story, but different, essentially. Well, I have to thank you and give you a shout out for your own work on this, because I think a credible tech reporter like yourself coming out guns blazing and really calling for accountability in a strong way mm-hmm. changed the conversation where you had people digging in. I mean, this is the same pattern around each of these stories, whether mm-hmm. it's NBC or AMI. You know, people dig in and they deny and they lie. And I get it why that happens when their backs are up against the wall, but it is fellow journalists calling for accountability and you mm-hmm. did it in a particularly incisive way that, that ultimately makes a difference. I did a column, yeah, I did a column. Yeah. I was sort of shocked, was, because I was shocked by it. I couldn't believe that, that someone I knew pretty well would make a judgment like this. A- and I, I urge everyone listening to go and seek out that column that, that Kara wrote about Joy Ito and the situation at MIT. The story was interesting to me. I mean, first of all, it had that hallmark of so many of these stories that I've been fortunate enough to investigate where there was an incredibly brave whistleblower, Signe Swenson. Um, and you met her through whistleblower aid, is that correct? Correct. They came to you, right? Which uh, figures in the plot of Catch mm-hmm. and Kill because mm-hmm. I end up introducing them to uh, John Ty, one of the attorneys there, yep. and they help a whistleblower in, in the book come right. forward. Um, so I had, you know, a, a previous set of contacts with them, and when they got these documents from a whistleblower, it became the bedrock for a wider investigation that we did where a whole lot of other people corroborated it and gave further documents. And mm-hmm. what we were able to piece together was, you know, a situation where in the years after Jeffrey Epstein was a convicted sex offender and had been marked in the donor database at MIT as someone that they should not be doing business with, there was a concerted cover-up to allow the money to keep flowing from Epstein to launder it through other intermediaries, including Bill Gates, Mm -hmm. who uh, gave an apparently false response statement saying he had no relationship with Epstein. And in the weeks since, other reporters have done great work uncovering the fact that that is not accurate. And you had these millions of dollars flowing into, you know, a noble enough uh, philanthropic and research endeavor, but at what cost? Because the thing that I was able to lay out in that story, thanks to the eloquence of these sources and whistleblowers, was when you have Jeffrey Epstein secretly visiting MIT and bringing, you know, very young women with him who uh, some of the female staff at MIT begin to feel maybe are in danger or are being trafficked. And Jeffrey Epstein is then running around publicly invoking that relationship sure. with MIT. It, it is an institution being used as a shield to protect a predator. Right, 100%. And yeah. that has significant I, I, stakes. The, the, what was really astonishing to me was I, after I wrote that column and your reporting, which I thought was astonishing, just the emails alone. You should have published the emails and it would have been disgusting enough what was happening there. But they were like, well, what's wrong with taking his money? And I was like, what? Like, he's a predator. He's a pedophile. Why would you? Same thing with Khashoggi, you know, with tech companies Mm -hmm. taking him. This is just in the tech sector. But it was really fascinating. Like, let's let this one slide. Well, I think people make the category error of thinking that it is just a matter of principle. And it is a matter of principle. And there are all sorts of symbolic reasons to not Uh, associate with people who are credibly accused of very, very serious crimes. But it's easy to forget that it's also a purely practical matter. If you are behaving in a way institutionally that gives cover to someone who potentially is engaging in an ongoing pattern of criminal activity, whether it is a convicted sexual predator, or you mentioned the Khashoggi case, Mm -hmm. I mean, if you are doing business with the Saudi regime as they are potentially targeting and killing journalists, what you're doing is propping up that activity. Right. And people can get hurt as a result. Well, one of the things that that I thought was key to your reporting is the rationalization of people along the way. And then the moment when they decide, oh, no, what what, what trade have I made? And it mm-hmm. reminded me of so much. When we were doing Uber reporting, what we got a break on the when Travis was using the files of a rape victim, the reason we got the information was someone there finally was like, what have I done? 
it was a really interesting moment. And it wasn't someone who was victimized. It was someone who worked there and felt, oh, my God, I, mm-hmm. I have made, I've rationalized that this was okay well, in some fashion. And that was the theme throughout the book. I thought your book is people rationalizing this behavior for other reasons. Same thing with the MIT reporting. In some ways, this book is about specific plots to conceal things and to cover for uh, alleged predators. But in other ways, it's just about your garden variety corporate cowardice Mm -hmm. and passing the buck and rationalizing and saying, oh, well, that's above my pay grade or it's not my responsibility. It's, It's about surrendering your obligations to leadership and really deliberately burying your head in the sand. I mean, I I look at whether it's the MIT emails that you referred to or in the book, there's a moment after NBC kills the Weinstein story where, you know, Noah Oppenheim, the president of NBC News and Harvey Weinstein are emailing and, you know, Harvey says, you know, it's time to bury the hatchet, essentially sends this friendly email and sends Noah Oppenheim a bottle of Grey Goose. And and Noah Oppenheim says, you know, thanks, Harvey. It's great to hear from you. And you just wonder what's going through someone's mind when they put that in writing, whether it's cover up this donation from Epstein or, you know, great to hear from you, Harvey. And, you know, thank you for the bottle of Grey Goose. It's um, or have dinner in Silicon Valley. Those people who had dinner with right? him after the thing. Well, and, and one of, one Noah Oppenheim has dinner with Harvey Weinstein in the in the midst of the you know at an event, but seated next to him in, in the midst of a uh, an ongoing investigation where he knows there's a taped confession of sexual assault. So people have great ability to pass the buck and look the other way. And mm-hmm. I, I hope one of the lessons of these stories is like think twice, be conscientious at the time, not just afterwards. So how do you get people to stop doing that? Because conti- I interviewed Bill Crystal the other day. He was talking yesterday. He was talking about the, the rationalizations of people with that used to think Trump was bad, and then they rationalized this, and they rationalized that. And he said that's the real danger he feels um, more than anything, is that people suddenly give up or they get exhausted or, or, or something else. And you, you have to, as a reporter, catch a break from someone who will then drop the dime, essentially, on people. Right. I mean, one answer to that question is the bravery of sources and whistleblowers within yeah. these institutions yeah. continues. And as long as that's the case, uh, we have a fighting chance at ensuring accountability and disincentivizing this kind of behavior. Mm-hmm. So, you know, people should keep receipts and they should be willing to come forward, even if it means burning professional bridges. And mm-hmm. the book is possible because people continue to do that. And beyond that, you know, I, I am a reporter and not an activist. And it's not my part of the job to kind of ensure that people are stopped or that the behavior changes. My job is this sort of narrow subset of fairly and rigorously interrogating the facts. And I'm really grateful when there's commentary afterwards like yours Mm -hmm. that then takes that set of facts and translates it into a really strong rallying cry. And we're we're seeing that around the reporting in the book as well from Mm -hmm. fellow journalists right now. And I'm grateful for it. it, What's interesting is the inability to say stop enough. You know, this is enough. And and the, the second part of it, I've been approached by so many people, powerful people like Especially when I start to write these things, like, can't we just forgive and move on? Like, that that to me, and I, you know, the truth and reconciliation part. And so many times I'm like, not yet. <laughs> Maybe. Well, Call go- me. good. Call me in a couple of weeks. Good. It's a really interesting movement right now in the Me Too. It's like, shouldn't people be stack ranked based on their behavior? Oh, he just said something about her boobs. He didn't do this. He did, like, that's sort of going on in a really interesting way. And to me, it's not the appropriate time yet to do that. But perhaps, I mean, a lot of people are trying to push this it's gone too far mm-hmm. narrative. I mean, I don't I don't know the answer to that question. And I, and again, I think it's very distant from my job as a reporter that's mm-hmm. working on these very serious, often criminal allegations. Right, exactly. And it's just sort of in this narrowly focused position of ferreting out the, the truth. And I am grateful that that wider conversation is happening. I don't think it's inappropriate that those questions are asked of mm-hmm. how far is too far and the distinct kinds of allegations. Certainly from my standpoint, in terms of the reporting, I am very careful not to conflate any two of these right. kinds of stories. Each fact pattern is different and should be assessed in a an individual depending fair on the receipts and the, and, the, and, for, and the proof. For sure, there's very different kinds of stories and very different levels of severity that are, are present in, for instance, catch and kill. Right. And so, where are you going to go next? What is your next? People are always like, "What's his next victim?" I said, "I don't know. I don't. I have no idea. No one's a victim." Here, by the way, <laughs> thank, thank all you. Predators. Right. I mean, I, but then my next uh, focus of reporting is. 
wherever the leads take me, and I, you know, I go into each story willing to go where the facts may may lead. And I am really grateful to say that my inbox is still full of leads tips. and tips. And I hope people continue to entrust me with if they have evidence of you know not just me two stories, but any kind of corporate or government malfeasance or corruption. Um, there's an interesting. You know, a lot of my reporting has been on foreign policy, and there's there's right. an interesting, uh, more sort of national security oriented story that I'm working on now. Actually, today after I part ways with you, mm-hmm. on no, can't can't say a damn <laughs> thing about it, Kara. Are you surprised you ended up this way? Like this has happened. This is where you because you start off in the television thing. You were doing foreign policy. You know, now you're a sort of Wonder Boy investigative reporter kind of thing that it's really has taken down some very powerful people. People it, hate getting calls from me now. Yeah, I know. They're like, oh, no, it's Trump. What did <laughs> like, I do? I'm really very polite on the phone. Yeah, it's not that bad. Yeah. And also, by the way, a vast majority of my calls are to people who are helping with stories, not, right. not people who are terrified of the call. You know, I, I hope that uh, prominent in whatever kind of reputation I've acquired around that reporting is a, a reputation for fairness and being really measured and mm-hmm. In most of these cases, these are uh, uh, stories of a degree of seriousness where they're going to come out. You know, I I do believe that the truth will out in these cases inevitably. And I would like to think that I am regarded as a fair set of hands for the facts to be in. Mm -hmm. And your HBO show is going to focus in on those kind of stories. Thankfully, you know, so much of the the book is about some of the failures in television news, and that was also obviously a theme in my reporting on CBS News. Um, but there, it is also about great journalists in that world, and there's plenty of institutions that uh, are doing great work and backing tough investigative reporting. And HBO, God bless them, you know, saw the reporting I was doing at the New Yorker and said, um, "Let's let's do this uh, on television. Let's people want more of this." So mm-hmm. um, we are doing long form documentaries that are very much in the same vein as these tough New Yorker stories that I do that are narrative and hopefully exciting and hopefully expose hard truths. Do you prefer truths. any medium? I mean, you're, we move among them, but what... I really see different forms of power in different mediums. You know, there's a reason this story in Catch and Kill is a book, because it is about this slow accumulation oh, yarn, and intersection, yeah. and it is a yarn, and it is personal in various ways, so it had to be a book uh, on multiple levels, and, and once you make a decision like that, you know, you, you make it as powerful a book specifically as it can be in ways that are totally distinct from a magazine article being powerful. Um, but magazine art- articles can have their own separate power that books can't, and the same goes for TV pieces and short-form TV on cable or network versus documentaries. Each of these can be used in a really effective way, and I think as long as we hold ourselves accountable in each of those mediums and stay tough in them, they can be great vehicles for telling different kinds of stories. All right, my last question. You, there was a, one of the stories I read about you was about uh, sort of the inspiration you got from your sister, mm-hmm. what she said. Could you recount that? Because I thought that was incredibly moving. Yeah, one of the struggles in the book is for a long time, I, I really insist, I don't want to be the story. I don't want to tell the, the story behind the story. Well, and, you are kind of interesting. Well, thank you, Kara. You are too. <laughs> Not as but, interesting as you, <laughs> but go ahead. But I, I basically, you know, in the end, I, I acquiesce to calls from tough journalists who say over and over again as I kind of dodge questions on air for a variety of complicated reasons I lay out in the book. I'm like, no, this is a separate and important story that kind of reveals why these serious crimes go unreported for so long. And in order to tell that story, I knew that there was going to be a personal thread in it, that part of it was going to be about investigating this high-octane espionage plot that I was in the crosshairs of. And once it became personal, I had to be nakedly honest about the fact that in my own life, I haven't always been sort of heroic and in the right on these issues. And I, like so many people in the lives of sexual assault survivors, really played the role of of trying to stifle my sister who had a credible allegation of this type and to say, why can't you just move on? Mm-hmm. And I, I am open about that in the book because I hope others, you know, other families, other people around survivors draw insight from it, you know, that this is not always an easy process and that I really had to grow and learn and and draw strength from her courage. Mm-hmm. And over time, I did come to realize as I looked into her claim and realized how credible it was and as I saw what was happening in the wider culture, that her refusing to shut up was a good thing and right. that I was wrong and that in journalism, we were failing to ask a sufficient number of tough questions about mm-hmm. this. Yeah, we self-edit ourselves in a lot of ways. I think about that a lot. Like, that was, to me, the most powerful part of the book, is the realization of that, of Thank understanding you. the victim. Yeah. Or, or, or letting them speak. 
essentially. Right. I mean, I get this question a lot, like, do you believe all survivors? And it, it really isn't the idea here that we should believe all survivors or, or anyone automatically. You know, in my view as journalists, we should listen in all cases to all credible claims and then interrogate them ruthlessly and decide if they're true. And and for a long time, the culture wasn't listening at all. So where are they? I think there's still a long way to go. And I think the kind of digging in and the spin against this kind of reporting that you see around each story that I do is evidence of the fact that there are still powerful people at the reins of the narrative who would rather uh, there not be transparency on some of these points. But on the other hand, as I said, the book is very much about the optimism of sources who refuse to stop and reporters who refuse to stop. Well, I hope you don't stop. Thank you, Kara. I will either deal. Deal. All right. Ronan Farrow, my favorite journalist, thank you for coming on the show. What an honor. Any time. It might change at any time, just so you know. I I know. I got it. (laughs) Setting the bar high. No pressure. (laughs) Anyway, you can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Eric Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. Ronan, where can people find you online except everywhere? At Ronan Farrow and on Instagram and the Uh Twitters and all the the places I get trolled all the time. Uh, And the book is for sale everywhere. Is it going to be a movie? I have been honored to be approached about the movie rights, including by some creative people that I really respect, and there is uh, nothing wrong with adaptations far from it. I think it can actually, uh, you know, bring important stories to a wider audience in in an excellent way. I just knew that I had to spend the last couple years focused on getting the reporting airtight. Who's going to play you? (laughs) You don't care about this boring answer. You're like, I have the cast. You know who I think. Joffrey from Game of Thrones. (laughs) I I don't know that that's a flattering. It is flattering. uh, He's beautiful man. What are you talking about? I mean, he had had a bad character going on there. The point I was trying to be politic about, Kara, is I had to get the reporting right, so I have not done anything about. All right. Well, it should be a movie. I'm very excited. Uh, I think it will be a great one. Thank you, Kara. And if you like this episode. We really appreciate it if you share it with a friend and make sure to check out our newest podcast, Reset. Just search for it on your podcasting app of choice or tap a link in the show notes. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Robbie. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Wednesday. Tune in then. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder. But you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.